the Beaver Trilogy started by I'm out in the parking lot. And there's a guy, never seen him before in my life. I turned the camera on him. I love impersonating, and by gosh, if I made the tube, I'd just thank you so much. <laughs> and I had no idea at that point that it would change my entire life. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to uh, do Sundance on the program today. The Sundance Film Festival is ongoing. You heard the uh, voices there of Trent Harris, who went on to direct cult classics Plan 10 from Outer Space and Reuben and Ed. In 1979, he was the producer for Channel 2's offbeat show Extra. He ventured out in the parking lot to test new equipment and happened upon a young man taking pictures of the station's news helicopter. The kid called himself Groovin' Gary. He was the self-proclaimed Rich Little, an impressionist in Beaver, Utah. His infectious personality and small-town impressions of John Wayne, Sylvester Stallone, Barry Manilow, Olivia Newton-John piqued Harris's interest enough. He gave the young man a business card, asked him to be alerted if anything newsworthy happened in his hometown. What happened next would change the lives of both men. And uh, Trent Harris went on to document uh, his multiple attempts at recreating the original magic of the Beaver Kid. That became known as the Beaver Trilogy. Now, director Brad Besser gives us the rest of the story in the Beaver Trilogy Part 4 which uh, goes into the mystique of this cult classic, unravels the mystery of Harris's original inspiration, and explores the line between the quest for fame and the exploitation of those who pursue it. Later in the program, we'll talk with Brad Besser. Right now, we bring in UPR Sundance reporter Steve Smith. Steve, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. So what, what draws you back every year? I know you, you, you go back most every year, right, to, to Sundance. What, what is it? I do. I've been coming for several years, and it's just, this is like the the best opportunity for people here in Utah and really in the whole United States to experience the biggest film festival in the country. And it's it's an opportunity to see the smaller films. A lot of the films that don't make it to the big screen uh, end up coming here, and and it's a, a chance for those filmmakers who are starting out getting the chance to get their movies out there, get someone to make them. Someone to distribute them and, and to get their voices heard. The, the studios have such a lock on on these big budgeted films, and these uh, little films have a hard time getting into the market. So this is really the showplace for that. And and in recent years, the documentaries have really uh, taken off here. So so Sundance is still, I guess, the the showplace for the the smaller films, independent films, documentaries. It absolutely is. It's kind of a discovery festival. It's a place that uh, people come to um, the next uh, great director like uh, Christopher Nolan, who started out here, uh, Quentin Tarantino. These are like directors who are now uh, running the how Hollywood works now. They're running, running a lot of the studios. Uh, they make the films they want. They get the big budgets. So it's really an opportunity for these first-time directors to kind of catapult themselves eventually probably into bigger filmmaking so what's the what what's your what's the personal buzz the the personal attraction you you want to see something before it hits big you want to discover the next new director what uh, what what attracts you it, it it's a little bit of all of that some of it is that i just i love films and i i'm kind of drawn to the independent films because they're a little more personal they tell stories that don't always get a chance to be told in mainstream media and mainstream films. So it's an option. And sometimes you see great movies that you will never make it out to the to the masses and sometimes never get released. Sometimes this is the only time they ever get to be seen. And it's also the atmosphere that everyone's here to have a good time. You get the questions and answer sessions with the actors and the directors after the movies so they can ask them just about anything. What's uh, what's getting the big buzz? What's uh, maybe you know take top top three that's got maybe you excited or the people there excited? Well, you know, there's a, a few. There's kind of in different categories. We got the documentaries, which uh, the last few years have really come up, and uh, a couple of the documentaries that are really getting talked about is first one is one called Going Clear. It's called Going Clear: The Scientology and the Prison of Belief, and it kind of exposes what happens in the Scientology religion, and it's getting a lot of publicity because of the Tom Cruise is such a, a big part of that, and 
and the role it played in possibly the divorce between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And it really is kind of ruffling the feathers of the, the higher-ups of Scientology. And that's getting a lot of buzz. Um, also, Prophet's Prey, which we'll hear a little bit about, the Warren Jeffs movie, uh, following his uh, his rise to fame, fame, so to speak, and, and his control over everybody. Um, another one that a lot of people have been talking about is one called The Russian Woodpecker, which follows a uh, Ukrainian victim of the Chernobyl disaster, and and years later kind of follows up on on their progress there, and that is also one that might win one of the awards. In the uh, dramatic area, we've, we've got several. Um, Stanford Prison Experiment is one that's gaining a lot. It is about the uh, experiment that was done in at Stanford University in the 1970s uh, that took students off campus, they paid them, and then put them into a housing unit, kind of, and turned it into a prison where some became guards, some became the inmates, and then they just let it roll, and it was interesting how quickly they all changed their environment, became entirely different people given that situation. I've heard about that, so there's a, there's a film out on it now. That, that should be there pretty is. interesting, yeah. And the, the guy who actually did the, um, who actually did those experiments, he came to the screening of that. So that was very interesting. Oh, wow. What was the reaction? You know, he didn't say anything, but they, the filmmakers did say that he, that they worked with him uh, throughout the film to make sure they were accurate. Hmm. Before we go on to, uh, to hear about some of the others, uh, those sound like very interesting films, and I'm sure that those, uh, most of the ones you mentioned there, will will get released, and, and hopefully we'll be able to, to see these. Um, let's hear your interview with, uh, with Amy Berg next. Uh, she, uh, directed this, this film, um, about Warren Jeffs, right? Yes, she did. Uh, so you were able to catch up with her in, in Park City. It's about a, a three minute interview. Uh, one of the films getting some buzz there at, uh, in Sundance and our reporter, Steve Smith, uh, caught up with the filmmaker, Amy Berg. I read Under the Banner of Heaven, and I'm interested in cults and religion and systemic issues that affect society, and I felt like this story had so many interesting tentacles to it. But when I first heard one of Warren Jeff's sermons, I was really interested in knowing more because he's not what you consider a dynamic leader, and I was just so surprised that he had over 10,000 followers with that demeanor. How does someone like Warren Jeffs, how is he able to control so many people, do you think? I think the film will, will show you that to a greater extent, but I think that the brainwashing from birth is his greatest tool, and he has 10,000 people who would know nothing else, and all that they believe is that it's this way or they're going to be damned, and so he has this extreme power over all of these people, even though he's serving a life sentence plus 20 years in a prison in Texas. I've actually been to Colorado City a couple times, and it was interesting because there's dirt roads and there's unfinished houses. Uh, what is the world like for these women and the people of that community? The community is broken down into people that are believers and that people who have been kicked out or have left for some reason. So you have a lot of tension on the streets there because people who have been kicked out are called apostates, and they are struggling just like the people within the group. So there's just a lot of confusion. There's a lot of hostility. There's a number of white, large trucks that are driving around. They're called the God Squad, and whenever somebody shows up in town, they try to intimidate you enough to leave. It's kind of like a war zone down there. So when you were making this documentary, what kind of access and maybe even reception from the people of the community there did you receive? I don't know if you went to the place to, to do the documentary, but did you speak with some of them? Were they hesitant? Uh, many people were hesitant because they've been taught not to trust people outside of their group. And so, you know, we had that hurdle almost every step of the way. But over time, we were able to garner trust and get some really interesting interviews and access. And the film is comprised largely of our interviews and Warren Jeff's words himself. So I think it's a really interesting, unique look inside of the mind of this man. 
as you mentioned, he is still in prison and, and serving um, a life sentence, essentially. And what is his contact that he still has with his people? Does, does he still have a hold over them, or has somebody else taken his place? Well, his brothers are his spokespeople, but he still records sermons from prison, and he has visitors come and visit him there in Texas, and he's running the show. Your movie will have six showings throughout the week. So what does your schedule look like here? You're going to be pretty busy, and then what happens after the festival for you? I'm definitely going to be busy on Sundance. And then after that, we are going to be airing it on Showtime, and I think we are going to have a theatrical release sometime before that. And we're hoping to do a lot of community outreach screenings all over Utah. Thank you, Amy Burke, for joining us today, and best of luck with your movie at the festival. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. So that is uh, Steve Smith, our reporter at Sundance, with Amy Berg, who has directed uh, Prophet's Prey. It's an examination of FLDS uh, church leader Warren Jeffs. So, uh, Steve Smith, uh, that's uh, you say is, is a film that is getting some buzz there at Sundance. It's one of the ones that a lot of people are trying to get into. It's not the easiest ticket, but it's uh, they do have a lot of showings. So, and like she mentioned, after the festival, that's one that's going to be. Uh, showing around Utah a little bit, so hopefully a lot of people have an opportunity to see it. So all the filmmakers who come to Sundance, I, I assume, the goal is to to get a distribution agreement, right? To get it shown somewhere. It is, and you know this year is a very important year for that in in several ways. Uh, the studios are really looking at what's going on this year because last year. Uh, Boyhood premiered here, Whiplash premiered here, uh, didn't have distribution, and they did get distribution. And and now both of those movies are up for Academy Awards for Best Picture and several other acting awards, and is expected to win, possibly Boyhood winning the Best Picture and Best Director. Whiplash will probably win Best Supporting Actor, and Patricia Arquette from Boyhood has a good chance of winning Supporting Actress. So these movies are really making an impact in Hollywood and in the big film community. Sundance, I think, still important to the uh, Utah economy, right? A lot of, in some ways, it's kind of a helicopter event for Hollywood. <laughs> you, you come in for a while, and then you go back. But uh, in the meantime, you leave behind a lot of money. Absolutely. They, uh, this brings in so much money for the Utah economy, plus the Park City economy. And, and you know, they, they have thousands and thousands of people come in, and the hotel rooms fill up, uh, Merchandise is sold, the restaurants fill up, and, and it's just quite an atmosphere. And it's, it's great that we have this in our own backyard. Some people don't realize that what a big event this is for Hollywood. We are kind of the center of the entertainment world for a couple of weeks here. And it's, hmm. uh, it's really kind of great to have it here. Now, is it possible, I mean, you, you're a veteran, you know your way around. Um, is it possible for somebody who hasn't been there before to to just go down to Sundance and have a good time, or is it just too crowded? You know, it, it depends on what you're looking for. I think it, it's possible for everybody to have a good time. They just need to know that if they come down, they're not just going to be able to walk into a movie. These screenings, I'm here at the Eccles Theater in the, excuse me, in the lobby right now, and it, a movie's in and it holds 1,300 seats, and every seat is taken. So it, it you have to know how to do it a little bit, but if you don't get into a movie, there's a lot of free things that go on up and down Main Street. Their, their sponsors are here with Acura showing their their new car things. They're giving away hats and water bottles and DVDs sometimes. And, and you can just walk up and down Main Street and just get the electricity of what's going on. You'll see stars walking around and sometimes people following them. And uh, it's it's quite a, a event, you know. I want to uh, get in another one of your uh, short interviews that you've uh, done. I want to before we uh, say goodbye, we're, and we'll get on t- in the next segment uh, to my interview with Brad Besser, uh, the Beaver Trilogy Part Four, updating a very interesting story about uh, Utah filmmaker Trent Harris and a young man who called himself the the Beaver Kid uh, from Beaver, Utah. Uh, this is an interview, uh, Steve Smith. You you caught up with Korean filmmaker Benson Lee. His film is Soul Searching. Soul spelled as the city in Korea. I was looking over and reading a little bit about some of your past experiences. First of all, could you uh, maybe give us a little bit about your background as a filmmaker? 
I uh, did not go the traditional route as a filmmaker in terms of going to film school. You know, I was very green, and at that time, Sundance was really transforming into a, a really just big festival. I mean, it was always one of the most important film festivals in the States, but at that time, it was a lot less uh, um, in terms of size and celebrity. It was a lot more, it was a lot smaller back then, but... It was a great experience. It changed my life. I got to meet, you know, some of my heroes, filmmakers, producers, who I, I'd, you know, whose films I'd seen or read their books, and being able to connect with, you know, these people um, at that age and, and that point in my career was had a huge impact on me, and it also made me realize how little I am I knew. <laughs> so actually, Sundance was like the best film school I went to, making my own movies, and from that point on, I really started kind of learning more about the craft more and, you know, living as just a, an individual, getting more life experience. Uh, I feel I've actually done a lot of that now, now that I'm going back for the second time to Sundance. So it'll be a really interesting uh, experience this time around for me. The The film you're bringing is called Soul Searching. Correct. Could you tell us a little bit about the premise of the film? Because it's very intriguing and it's kind of a unique take a story. I don't think that's been told really before. Yes. Soul Searching is a romantic coming-of-age film about a group of Korean kids who were sent to Seoul, Korea during the summer of 1986 to learn about their heritage. It focuses on three boys, and they couldn't be any different than each other, but it's that summer that they end up meeting these three girls who change their lives forever. The movie was actually inspired by my own personal experience when my parents sent me to Korea the summer of 86, and that turned out to be the best summer of my life. Uh, it changed my life and had a profound impact on the rest of my life in terms of how I saw myself as a Korean. It's also a homage to 80s teen films. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of John Hughes and The Breakfast Club, and my goal was to make a teen comedy in that vein, but with more depth. But at the same time, also with Asian characters. You know, I, I love John Hughes, but I had a problem with the, the, the depiction of Asian characters in his movies. And so, you know, I've pretty much made the movie that I've always wanted to see when I was growing up in high school. And then on top of that, you add an element of Korean drama to the mix. So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting film. And uh, following the festival, um, which it, this movie is going to premiere, I believe, Friday, January thirtieth. Right. What happens next for the film? You got more festivals, or have you got distribution? Do you know yet? Yeah, we didn't, we don't have a distributor yet. So uh, that's where we're hoping at Sundance I will find a home for the movie. We have been invited to other film fests, but we're still waiting on others. You know, that's really just like the, the starting point for the movie. It's a great starting point. And I hope that, you know, because of the international sort of stories that take place in the film, that we'll be able to take it to other festivals around the world. Just happy that it's all, it's all starting at, at the place where I premiered my first movie. Well, that sounds great. I'm excited to see it. I think it should be, it looks like a really fun movie. Thank you so much for joining us and good luck with everything. Thank you. So that's uh, UPR Sundance correspondent Stephen Smith, who we have another minute uh, with here, uh, and uh, Korean filmmaker Benson Lee. That sounds fascinating, uh, Breakfast Club set in Korea. If you look at the, the stills for this, it's you got the big 80s hair set in the Absolutely. 1980s. Yeah, <laughs> so that, does, that does sound fun. That's premiering on Friday uh, tomorrow. Uh, so just uh, 30 seconds left. What, what do you, Tell us another couple of films that you've really got your eye on. Well, it's going to be interesting because we still have some premieres coming. We have I Am Michael tonight with James Franco, and he's been all over. He's got two movies here, and he's got one up at Slamdance. So he's very busy. And we also have the one called Lila and Eve with uh, Jennifer Lopez and Viola Davis, which is going to be premiering tomorrow, I believe, as well. And then the awards on Saturday. Well, it all sounds uh, sounds great, and the, the film festival goes through what Saturday or Sunday, I believe. Yes, it'll uh, they'll, they'll show all the winners on Sunday. Okay. So anybody who's not watching the Super Bowl might be able yeah. to get into some movies then. <laughs> That's right. They might be a little depressed in the in the attendance there. Well, uh, we've reached the end of our time here. Stephen Smith, the UPR correspondent at uh, Sundance. Thanks so much, and and uh, we look forward to continued reports, keeping us up to date on Sundance. Thank you. Coming up following a break, we're going to talk with Brad Besser. He tells us the rest of the story, a fascinating story, with filmmaker Trent Harris and the Beaver Kid. It's the Beaver Trilogy Part 4. That's uh, coming up following this break. 
on the next On Being, social researcher Brene Brown. She compiled data on vulnerability and courage that shook the perfectionistic ground beneath her own feet. I cannot find a single example of courage, moral courage, spiritual courage, leadership courage, relational courage, that was not born completely of vulnerability. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, featuring lunch panini, salads, sandwiches, and soups. Full menu at crumbbrothers.com. The Beaver Trilogy started by out in the parking lot. There's a guy, never seen him before in my life. I turned the camera on him. I love impersonating, and by gosh, if I made the tube, I'd just thank you so much. <laughs> and I had no idea at that point that it would change my entire life. It's amazing, those little points, little points that hit, that just, whoa, take you in a whole direction you never, ever thought would happen. The layers that are built upon that chance encounter added up into this one-of-a-kind piece of art. Now the Beaver Kid, you know, becomes more than the beaver kid for the first time. The beaver kid now becomes an icon. Who was he? Who was the beaver kid? He came up with an idea. He said, hey, we ought to do part four. <laughs> so that's the trailer for the Beaver Trilogy Part 4. Uh, in 1979... Uh, Channel 2 in Salt Lake City, Trent Harris, who went on to direct the cult classics Plan 10 from Outer Space and Reuben and Ed, was a producer for the station's offbeat show Extra. And he encountered this fascinating uh, kid, young man, in the parking lot. The kid was from Beaver, Utah, called himself Groovin' Gary. He was the safe, self-proclaimed Rich Little of Beaver, Utah. And his infectious personality and small-town impressions of John Wayne, Sylvester Stallone, Barry Manilow, and uh, Olivia Newton-John piqued Harris's interest. Eventually, Harris traveled to Beaver, Utah, and filmed The Beaver Kid. What happened next changed the life of both Trent Harris and The Beaver Kid. And The Beaver Trilogy, the original trilogy, documents Harris's multiple attempts at recreating the original magic of The Beaver Kid. Well, now, Brad Besser, a director, uh, has updated the story in The Beaver Trilogy Part 4. That premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival. And he dives into the mystique of this cult classic, the original Beaver Trilogy, unravels the mystery of Harris's original inspiration, and explores the line between the quest for fame and the exploitation of those who pursue it. And so here's my conversation with Brad Besser. Let me uh, ask you first how you got involved in in this. Of course, uh, you don't even have to be in the film community to have heard of Trent Harris, but I had not heard of the uh, Beaver Trilogy before encountering your film, how did how did you uh, come across the story? Oh, well, you're missing out. Yeah, yes. The Beaver Trilogy is one of the greatest. I always <laughs> felt like the uh, after I watched it, I watched it. Uh, I'm originally from Salt Lake City, so I watched it. Trent was kind of a an icon. He always gets a little bit uh, bashful when I start throwing around words like icon and genius and those kind of things. But um, he really was, you know, an inspiration for me growing up in Salt Lake City. And uh, when I saw the Beaver Trilogy, I was just um, amazed by it, um, partially because it leaves you with so many questions. And the biggest questions for me were, um, whatever happened to the original Beaver Kid and why did Trent decide to make this movie? Because it is um, such a unique piece. It, it, so, and a little backstory, I guess, Trent was, he was working for KUTV and he was testing out a, uh, he calls it a newfangled thing called a video camera. So it was the first <laughs> right. video camera. They shot everything on film to that point. And he was working with the first video camera. And he just found this uh, young man from Beaver, Utah in the parking lot. And they had this just amazing back and forth, just hilarious and funny. And um, he eventually followed him down to Beaver, Utah, where he did a talent show where he dressed up as Olivia Newton-John. And then when Trent went to AFI, he redid the story with Sean Penn and then decided to redo it again with Crispin Glover. And years later, he put the three films together and just called it the Beaver Trilogy. And it was, you know, still, I think it's one of the films they should put in the Library of Congress. Um, you know, that's how, that's how much I think of it. So 
Now, when did you encounter this? What what year? This was this encounter in the parking lot was 1979 between yeah, Trent so Harris and, and this young man. Yeah, the encounter in the parking lot was in 1979, and I think my my parents were still thinking whether they wanted to have kids. Should <laughs> they have kids? I don't. I wasn't even on the scene at that point. And so he put these three films together, and I think by maybe 1984 he had all three, and they just kind of sat on the shelf for years and years and years. Uh, and it was about 2000, and he was teaching at the Utah Film and Video Center, and he got the wild idea to put the three films together. And um, it just so happens I was taking classes from Trent at that same time, and uh, he would share he would share the the three films separately as a, as you know, where does an idea come from? You know, when you're writing a screenplay, where do you get your inspiration? And the Beaver Trilogy was kind of um, a really good example of that because he found this, the kid in the parking lot, you know, he really enjoyed the interaction and then decided that he wanted to redo it again. But there were certain things that he changed in the second version and then even more things that he changed in the third version. And, um, and that's kind of what, you know, Beaver Trilogy Part 4 gets to is... is uh, you know, what's real, what isn't real, um, you know, how, how far off of, of um, reality and fiction uh, does the, can the story take you? Tell me a little bit about, uh, he calls himself Groovin' Gary. We learned later in the film his real name is Richard. Um, but mm-hmm. but he, he wants to, uh, his his dream, I think, is to become an impressionist. He, he, want, he wants to become, I don't know, get into show business, become famous. Yeah, I mean, it's probably all of those things, and I think that's his kind of, you know, there's there's a little bit of, of vagueness in, in exactly what he wants to do, but he did want to be an impressionist. He, um, Rich Little is a little bit uh, before my time, but I guess Rich Little at that time was kind of an institution in Vegas, and I think that um, that uh, the Beaver Kid was really inspired by that and thought that maybe even he could get down to Vegas or even go beyond that, and... Uh, even though I never actually wanted to be kind of in front of the camera, um, I couldn't help but kind of relate to that dream, that, that, that dream that he had of, of you know, kind of in that kind of naive dream, because you never know really where that dream's going to take you. Um, and so in, in that way, I could see kind of myself in his, in his story, and even in Trent's story. So, uh, Groovin' Gary, or uh, the Beaver Kid, or, you know, um, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. him. So, he does impressions, does John Wayne, he does um, does Barry Madelow. Um, but w- what becomes famous in the film, the Beaver Trilogy, is his impression of Olivia Newton-John. He, he is fascinated by Olivia Newton-John, and and for he wanted to do this talent show. He pestered, I guess, Trent Harris to, to come down. And and for yeah. for Channel Two's extra program, uh, you know, film this talent show, and he finally got Trent to come down, right, to to Beaver. Yeah, he he finally convinced him, and I I think that uh, the the extra program uh, was really kind of a magical. I guess you know the late seventies was a pretty magical time in television where they just had a lot of money, and it really gave Trent and uh, the people he was working with at KUTV and specifically Extra a lot of freedom to do kind of really. Um, stories you wouldn't see now and so uh you know it gave him it gave trent the freedom to say we could go down to beaver and shoot a talent show and maybe that is television worthy um and i think it really for the kid it was uh you know he was he was pestering him and part of the reason uh in my interpretation of it is that he just he wanted to do something that was so memorable that it would be sure to get trent down there and because Extra gave him the opportunity to do these kind of things that, you know, it was just kind of this magical moment where, you know, if it happened 10 years earlier or 10 years later, you know, the times wouldn't have allowed that anyways. Hmm. And so there's uh, some of the stuff you can't make up, right? He, he gets made up oh. by, the, by the mortician, right? Because it's the only person in town that could, I guess, do it, <laughs> do it justice and make him look like Olivia Newton-John. Puts on this big wig. He has, yeah. has the high heels. He's essentially in drag. And it seems yeah, like it I mean, seems like a lark, the right? Whole thing's just amazing. And until the audience files in, and and he, you interview his friend who is assisting him at, the, at that point, and uh, I guess at some point, the Beaver Kid get, catches the the vibe. This is this is small town Utah, nineteen seventy nine. 
And yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and uh, you know, even thinking about it, I went to school at Brighton, and if someone had dressed up as Olivia Newton-John, um, people would have thought it was funny, but there also would have been a little bit of confusion why they're doing it, and even if there wasn't confusion, there'd probably be, you know, the uh, the bullies of school that would just use this as an opportunity to, uh, you know, jab somebody. And so, um, and I, yeah, I think that, and especially in Beaver, Utah, that's, that was probably a pretty taboo thing to do that he didn't, I don't think that uh, John, John Morris, the piano player or uh, the Beaver kid had any idea that it was going to have that kind of reaction um, and he didn't, I don't think he quite knew what to do once he got that reaction, especially in a, such a small community. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And the, the performance itself, uh, it's quite touching. He, he goes in this falsetto, he's singing Olivia Newton-John, it, it's with a lot of feeling. Yeah. Uh, and, well, and it's also kind of a strange song, because it, it's not uh, an Olivia Newton-John song that you would usually associate with, like, a, you know, an impression. It's really... It's and it's actually a song that doesn't seem like it's meant. It seems like it's actually meant for Beaver Trilogy Part Four and the original Beaver Trilogy more than it is for a talent show kind of a thing because there's there's some really um, poignant lyrics in the particular song that he uses. And so this had a this had a big effect, I believe, on on the Beaver Kid. It's um, I don't know how much to reveal from from you know from yeah, we, uh, but it, mean, it had yeah, a big effect on him. Yes, yeah, it just. Yeah, it's, I mean, it changed. I think, you know, the moment in the parking lot changed both Trent Harris and the Beaver Kids' life forever. And, and really it was what the, the events that happened after this talent show that, uh, you know, it was, there was no way to go back to, to a, you know, what had been before. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is kind of the, the hook of the movie. Yeah. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Brad Besser. He's a director of the Beaver Trilogy Part 4. He's telling the story of the Beaver Trilogy, which is a, a series of uh, short films uh, by Trent Harris. And so this becomes the story of the Beaver Kid, this 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 young man from Beaver, Utah, who Trent Harris happens upon in the parking lot of Channel 2. And he, he's, yeah, I guess he's touched by, is interested in, and he, after being pestered, he goes down and films this uh, talent show down in uh, Beaver, Utah. And but the, but then uh, Trent Harris keeps going back, right? He 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 made this version with the Beaver Kid. Then he went back and for a hundred dollars made a version with Sean Penn. This is before Sean Penn star stardom, and it made a part three with Crispin Glover. What why did why do you think Trent Harris kept kept going back to this? Well, I think he kept going back. I mean, not to reveal too much, but the 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 Beaver Kid had had a, an accident with a gun, and I think the it had been so traumatic for Trent that I think that he was really working through a lot of the things. And um, I think in a, a strange way, I think he was trying to change what had happened. You know, if you remake the movie, you know, maybe he can, maybe he can win at the end. And Trent's just, you know, Trent's a crazy guy. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. maybe we don't yeah. need to look too deep right. into it. <laughs> don't, don't need to overanalyze it. Um, it. It's interesting that in, uh, you know, parts two and three, he um, he presents a character. It's essentially, I guess, a version of himself. It's the director, right? Um, yeah. And he presents this guy yeah. as, as manipulative and, and, and in some ways exploiting the, the kid. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a there was a certain amount of guilt. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure actually. Trent was very fair to himself in those remakes as the uh, kind of one dimensional bad guy character. Um, but I, th- I certainly think Trent probably had some guilt about it. So, um, yeah. So he, I mean, he portrayed himself as 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 the bad guy. But, as... but I don't necessarily think he was the bad guy. Yeah, he, you know, it was just. Part of that is just, you know, how do you tell it in a story? And some people in the, that you interview, and you interview um, the, the Beaver Kid's sisters, you interview the friend, I can't remember who it is, but they, they you know, they bring up who's exploiting who. Because it, in, in a sense, Beaver Kid pesters this filmmaker to come down. He's He, he can use this to, to maybe launch himself into, I don't know if he has a clear idea of what his career might be, but, it, but to launch himself. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely the truth. I think that you know he was. I think that uh, originally the Beaver Kid was obsessed with being on TV, and then it didn't take long before Trent Harris was obsessed with the Beaver Kid wanting to be on TV. So I think that there was they were all trying they were all trying to do things, and you know sometimes it didn't work out, but maybe it sometimes it didn't work out for the best. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So as we've said, this was life changing for for the Beaver Kid. Um, you know, you'd, you'd appear in drag, and there be some accusations. I think some people say there there were some accusations that he was gay. He, so in in a way, he was seeking fame, but uh, this this had an effect on him. The kind of fame he got in in this small town. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's kind of a classic example of the daydream turns into a nightmare. You know, you you want to you want to be in front of everybody, but. Uh, what happens when they what happens when they say bad things about you one of my favorite moments in your film um there's a there's a passage where apparently this this reporter from this american life people in public radio here be be familiar with this american life <laughs> interviews trent pesters him he essentially tells her to shut up. He he, and then he, then you, then you get him to say he, he's tired of talking about the Beaver trilogy. Yeah. Oh, shut up! He says. Yeah. Why don't you shut up? Yeah, that's classic Trent. <laughs> what What do you? Uh, I think he he thought he well, talked was, enough about the Beaver I trilogy. Trent just didn't want to. I think I mean, uh, you know, Trent Trent didn't want to uh, bring too much uh, spotlight back to the Beaver Kid. You know, the Beaver Kid. Um, he, 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 I guess he didn't probably want to open up old wounds, and I think that he was, uh, you know, when you when you pester Trent long enough, he'll tell you to shut up. <laughs> you go on in your film to, to give a, a bit of a synopsis of what happened when Trent went to, went to Hollywood, essentially. So he made these yeah, two, I mean, that, these two movies, yeah, I mean, and Hollywood they become, become cult cult become classics. Kind of brutal. Yeah, yeah. That's another one of those things where your dreams somehow. Your dreams and everything that you wanted can turn into a nightmare. You just everything that you ever wanted to come true uh, can change your life in a bad way. There's a passage where Trent says um, after the, the failures, the, the commercial, you know, failure of Reuben and Ed and Plan Ten from Outer Space, um, th- that it was a blessing that he didn't become a successful Hollywood filmmaker. And I, you know, I guess that can cut both ways. I don't know if he really believes it or or not. Oh, I think he believes it. I think that he had some pretty good friends in Hollywood, and uh, I think he had a couple of pretty good friends that made it um, pretty high up the pecking order. And I think that that they too, their their um, dreams weren't always as glamorous as as uh, people would make them out to be. Mm. Okay, so you you think he really does believe that he he, he he's oh yeah okay with the the way his path turned? Oh yeah, uh, I mean. I mean, in a way, in a way, we kind of portray Trent as a a failure, uh, and I don't think you would have it any other way. But with that said, uh, I still think Trent is, you know, even making this movie, we had, you know, a gazillion decisions, and then as soon as we thought we figured it out, something would fall through. You know, you know, money would be an issue, or travel would be an issue, or timing would be an issue, and then we'd have to make more decisions and. Um, this movie took me four years to make, and from from that vantage point, I think Trent's been doing this for forty, you know, forty plus years now. You know, he's been he's been working at it, and he's also got, you know, a, a large body of work that um, is a pretty impressive. So, I mean, in a way, I was saying earlier, he gets bashful that, you know, that I talk so much talk so much about him being an icon, but you know, he's a he's a guy that did it his own way and. No one was going to stop him. The Hollywood system said that he wasn't good enough. You know, he would he wouldn't listen, and he'd just keep going on. So um, there's something that's, uh, I guess, heroic about that. So at one point, he he speaks. I guess for a lot for a lot of filmmakers, he says I got forty dollars in the bank. I want to make uh, films. <laughs> Nobody's paying me. Nobody wants to pay me to do this. Yeah, and that's and and that's not going to stop him. And it's not it. I would say the same might be true even at this very moment that uh, he just finished shooting his latest feature film, The Rubber Room, and, 
You know, nobody's nobody's going to stop him. Mm-hmm. So, so they, you know, you you film him. He's he's out making sort of a self, you know, I don't know, self portrait, self documentary. He's going out to Cambodia and the Sierra Desert and, and various places. Yeah, no, nobody's stopping him. Mm-hmm. No one's going to stop him. And and uh, you know, he really is an, an adventurer. Um, he's kind of. I almost, I kind of think of him as maybe like the Hunter S. Thompson with a video camera. Mm. You know, if if uh, he's he's not going to write a, a normal piece, he's not going to shoot a normal video. He's going to kind of push the boundaries and and uh, you know try try a lot of new things in in just wildly diverse various places across the globe. So you've said that uh, the Trent Harris had an effect on you as a. Uh a young filmmaker uh, coming up. Uh, talk a bit about that. What? Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's really it really is. Uh, when I was a kid, I actually had a VHS bootleg of Reuben and Ed, and I didn't know much about, um, you know, box office or, you know, Hollywood success. I really, I think my, my knowledge of film was kind of limited to the VHS collection that I had. So when I was watching, you know, my collection, it was hard for me to tell the difference between Trent Harris's Reuben and Ed and Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Dumb and Dumber <laughs> and, you know, and so I didn't realize that it had been such a big failure. So when I realized that he was from Salt Lake City, uh, I couldn't help but be inspired and think, you know, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. Um, it took it took me quite a while till I realized that it was that Reuben and Ed had basically killed his Hollywood dreams. But um, I still kind of look at Trent with that that icon legend, like you know, if he's doing it, maybe I can do it. You know, even now. Yeah, you. Uh, I guess the history surrounding it doesn't affect the life that it takes afterward, right? Because as, as Trent Harris says in the movie, not only did critics not like it, but they called it you know the worst film of the decade and the, yeah, the worst movie of the decade, only to you know. 20 years later be uh, appreciated by by someone like Jared Hess who did Napoleon Dynamite um, you know and he he spent a lot of time in Salt Lake City and you know I think Trent Trent not only inspired me but I think Trent, Trent inspired a lot of uh, young wannabe filmmakers mm-hmm. in Salt Lake City and I guess if you were to describe the film it's, it's this weird character where he's wearing platform shoes they're out in the desert it's Chrisman Glover and Howard Hessman, and and he's the whole film. He's trying to find a place to bury his dead cat. Yeah, and I mean, there's a there's kind of something that that isn't maybe touched on in, uh, enough in the film, but that was uh, that was actually dedicated to his best friend Larry, who had who had died, and so you know Trent was kind of struggling with you know letting go of of you know his best friend and moving on and. Uh, you know, the cat is actually a metaphor for Larry in a way, but you wouldn't realize that it has that kind of deep undertones when you hear the lines like, my cat can eat a whole watermelon. Mm-hmm. I was probably in eighth grade walking around school saying, my cat can eat a whole watermelon, and I wonder what what everybody thought of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's touching through the through in your film, which is the Beaver Trilogy Part 4, Talking with Brad Besser, uh, the film premiered at uh, this year's Sundance. Um, his best friend, talking about Trent Harris, wanted him to scatter his ashes over the Grand Canyon, but uh, but uh, Mr. Harris couldn't bring himself to do that. Yeah, well, in the movie, in Reuben and Eddie, he's finally able to bury the cat, but in real life, he hasn't been able to bury Larry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he still got he still got him in his office. They still travel around together. Yeah, that, it's, 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 I, it's, I, it is pretty touching. I didn't get to meet Larry. Yeah. Larry had a uh, Larry actually had a pretty amazing uh, film career too, and uh, maybe the next documentary should be about Larry. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's sort of a dual track. You you want to tell the story of the Beaver Kid. You also tell Trent Harris's uh, story. And uh, back to the Beaver Kid. What what did you want to accomplish here? I I, I know the you got his sisters. To talk and and they wanted I don't know to set the record straight they or they, they wanted to uh, an update they didn't want the the vision of the Beaver Kid to be uh, what we saw I guess and left in the in the trilogy. Yeah, I mean there's there was uh, the Beaver trilogy because it was so kind of put together so quickly. It was just one film, 
and then the other film plays, and then the next film plays, but there's no real explanation of why these three films were made or who made them and why they made them and who was the, the original Beaver Kid. So there's all these kind of questions, and to be honest, I just wanted to, I just wanted to answer them. I was hoping that somebody else would make this movie. I, I gave them 10 years to try and make it, and, <laughs> and I figured, you know, I might... I should probably just go answer these questions myself. Right. <laughs> well, that's I've I've heard the um, the historian David McCullough. That's how he did, he said he did, describes why he how he picks his subjects. He looks around and see if sees if anybody else has written it. If they haven't, then he launches in and writes a book on it. So. Yeah, it just makes sense. Yeah, uh, a couple of lines from the from the film really stand out to me. Kind of you know treat some themes here. One, I can't remember who says this, that the, the, the beaver kid lived in, in two worlds, lived in reality, and then lived in sort of this, this make-believe world yeah. as well. And he went back and forth. Yeah. And I think Trent did, too. And I would say absolutely I do. I mean, even right now, I'm already dreaming about my next film and mm-hmm. all the things I'm going to do. So yeah, can't, you got... help but, can't help but daydream. Right. But by the way, what do you? But sometimes you, you got to pay the bills. Yeah, that's true. Can you reveal what you're going on to next? Oh, uh, I mean, it's obvious. Beaver Trilogy Part Five. Part the Five. Remake of the documentary, <laughs> which will complete the Beaver Trilogy trilogy. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true, but I will. Yeah. That's what I've been going with. It'll premiere at Sundance, I'm sure. And it'll pr- premiere at Sundance. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it has to. It can't not. One of the other lines that really, really struck me. There's some poignant moments. You're, you're talking to regular folks, right? This is this is Beaver, Utah. Um, the, I think it's a nephew of the Beaver Kid. He, he says yeah, yeah. he talks about how we all Casey Casey Griffiths Casey yeah. Griffiths he says we all put ourselves out there one one time or another. You know, we 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 all do that, and I guess we have variable experiences doing that. Yeah, I I, I would uh, say that that's kind of one of the primary themes of the film is, is we do put ourselves out there and I wouldn't, I would imagine that, you know, even great actors like Tom Hanks and even great directors like Spielberg have been humbled, humbled by reactions from, from audience reactions from their friends reactions, you know, from all over the place. So I think that's a really universal theme and it was, um, you know, I mean, it's something that we probably all deal with, even if it's, even if it's not with, you know, being on TV. It's, it's probably, probably have all put ourselves out there, and uh, you can't, you can't help but feel hurt when it, it doesn't end out, end up the way you want it. We just have a couple minutes left. There, there's another very poignant moment. It's the, it's the Beaver Kids at Richards. I'm not sure what to call him. He's in, in, in the Beaver trilogy. <laughs> he's, he's the Beaver Kid, right? But, and then in real life, he's Richard. Um, yeah. But the three sisters, they're, they're middle aged. I can say that because it yeah. seems like they're about the same age I am. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and they're, they're wondering what should we have done? You know, looking at the past, should we have encouraged him more? Should we, not that they discouraged him, I don't think. And and one of them says maybe we squash our own dreams. You know, there's yeah. there's a very universal worry, I guess. Yeah, regret. I mean, absolutely. It's I I I think that that's true. It's um, there's and maybe it's not even you know even if you, the, your dream ends up being a failure, if you enjoyed the process of it, you won't realize that it's a failure. I mean, there's. There's probably a Mark Twain quote. I think it's Mark Twain quote um, about you'll in the end you'll regret regret what you didn't do. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but um, but I think that that's kind of what you know what they were saying. You know that they probably should have pushed him out of the nest and said, "Go try it." You know, you only get one chance to try it, so you might as well. Hmm. Yeah. What do you take away? You know, I'll just preface this by saying it's it's. I don't know. There's there's something that stays with you. This kid in the parking lot. He he he's driven up to Salt Lake, and and he's he's filming. You know, the Channel Two helicopter, and he encounters this filmmaker. There's a naivete about him, um, and uh, no, something poignant about him as well. What 
what rolls over and over in your head as as you've lived now with the Beaver Kid for you know several years? Oh, I mean, he's he's still the lightning rod of Trent's films. He's the lightning rod of my film. He's funny. He's just a funny guy. He's good nature. He's good spirited. And um, I mean, still the best footage of the entire film is me just playing Trent's original footage inside of my film. I mean, the kid is. Um, I, I think it's it's partially, you know, there's there's a in a way there's a mirror there so you can see yourself. But and for me particularly, I could see myself. But um, I just thought he was just so dang funny that you couldn't help but fall in love with him. And then you know when he puts himself out there, uh, you you're, you still are in love with him and you just want like heck for him to succeed. Does this in the end say? Anything about Beaver, about Utah? Is, is it more universal than that? Is it more specific just to the Beaver kid? What do you think? Uh, good question. You know, I think Beaver Beavers is probably, I grew up in Salt Lake City, so I don't have as much familiarity with Beaver. But um, from what I've been told, because Trent actually grew up in a small town in Idaho, and I think he probably saw even more similarity to the Beaver kid than I did. Um because I think that growing up in a small town, there's there there may be more roles that you're you're supposed to play, and um, you know when you step outside of that, it kind of you know limits what you can do, um, which for me is disappointing. But I don't, you know I can't. That's not necessarily a universal thing. Well, we'll we'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, very interesting film. Uh, well worth the, the viewing, uh, premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival. I believe you have another screening on Saturday. One more screening Saturday, 615 yes. at the Redstone, right up in Kimball Junction. All right. Uh, the Beaver Trilogy, Part 4. We've been talking with the director, Brad Besser. Good luck, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you uh, taking some time to be with us. Traveling shoes, Lord, got on my traveling shoes. Traveling shoes, Lord, got on my traveling shoes. Got on, got Harriet on, got Tubman, on, got Rosa Parks, and six other significant African American women will come to life during Traveling Shoes, a one woman show presented by Utah Public Radio. Featuring professional speaker, storyteller, and writer Janice Brooks, the performance will take place at 7 p.m. Thursday, February 5th in the Kane Performance Hall on Utah State University campus. The event is part of the Provost Series on Instructional Excellence in celebration of Black History Month. There's no cost to attend Traveling Shoes. However, tickets are required and available at arts.usu.edu. More information is at upr.org and 797-3215. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.